Thank you, Pete. Uh, I'm sorry about my voice today. Uh, some of you, I know Lizzie used to be a speech therapist, and so she gave me professional advice this morning. And she said, um, drink lots, don't push it. <laughs> and um, she said, don't get too excited, because you won't sound excited anyway. So it's not, it's not worth worrying about that. Um, but yeah, I'm excited on the inside, even if my voice sounds rather flat this morning. Well, as we've just heard, we're in Acts 24 this morning. And if you were reading ahead, you might have read Acts 24 to 26. We're in these final couple of weeks now of this series. Um, but this morning, this is going to be our focus in this chapter. Uh, I wanted to start by um, telling you about something I received in the post a few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago it was. Uh, this ominous-looking letter came through, and I don't know if you get those through the post, and you start to worry, what, what is this thing? It looks very official. And I began to open it, and um, started to pull up what was inside, and my heart started to race even more. I could see this was some kind of penalty or fine, so I kind of pull up a bit further. Oh no, it's to do with driving. And um, I'm thinking, what have I done wrong, and what kind of trouble am I in? Are, are there going to be blue flashing lights outside, or... Um, is this going to clear out my bank account? The first relief came when I saw the extent of the rule that I'd broken. This was, this was just a parking fine. Uh, I'd parked in a car park and not remembered to put my number plate into one of those devices. And um, so there was a bit of relief there. Then further relief as I saw the fine. It was £60. That's not nothing, uh, but could have been much worse. And then further and better relief still, as I realized I'm actually innocent. We were in that pub, and we ate a meal, and I have the receipt. So growing relief. There's this fine, but I can prove my innocence. In these three chapters that we're looking at this morning in Acts, there are three trials. Over a period of more than two years, Paul is pushed from one prison cell to the next, from one uh, trial room to the next, from one judge to the next. Repeatedly, he is continually on trial. This morning, I want to focus, us to focus on the first of those three trials, and then leave you, if you haven't read them already, to explore the other two. But suffice it to say, innocent or guilty, things are looking serious for Paul. This is not just a letter in the post, a 60-pound fine. Humanly speaking, it looks like Paul is in real trouble again. Last week, the Jewish leaders were trying to kill Paul in Jerusalem, and he only just escaped under armed guard, and now he's been taken away as a Roman prisoner to Caesarea. And now the high priest, who is a real bigwig, important person, has traveled 60 miles down from Jerusalem to Caesarea with a bunch of elders uh, alongside him and with a high-profile lawyer to bring serious charges against Paul. Charges that he hopes will result in the execution of Paul. And so again, like last week, we could be forgiven for thinking everything is going wrong for Paul. And for asking the question, where is God in this? But of course, as we discovered last week, God is right here in the midst of this all. He's right there with Paul. The Lord himself, as we saw last Sunday, is at his side. He has not abandoned him. On the contrary, God is fully in control of all that's taking place, every detail of Paul's life. 
And he is using even Paul's trials and sufferings to work out his good and sovereign plan to make the gospel more widely known. If you were here last week, you'll remember the heartening message that the Lord delivered to Paul in his cell. Chapter 23, verse 11. Take courage, take heart. Just as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. God has a plan for Paul's life and for our lives as well that nothing and no one can in the slightest degree upset or thwart. And in fact, what now begins to take place throughout these three chapters is the fulfillment of a great promise that the Lord made about Paul right back at his conversion. Acts 9.15, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings. And kings. Did we ever stop to wonder how it was that small, bald, unimpressive-looking Paul would ever be granted an audience with kings? Imagine if Paul had just come knocking at the door of, of great leaders and of, of the kings of the land. If he'd come knocking and uh, the, the great rulers of the Roman Empire and he's asking, oh, would you let me in? And would you, would you, have you got five minutes? I'd love to come and tell you about Jesus. Would you let me preach the gospel to you? They'd have, they wouldn't have given him the time of day, would they? They would have thrown him back out on the street where he came from. But as Rome's prisoner, now on trial... He's about to be given countless opportunities to witness in places and before people he never would have been able to witness to before. In fact, the the Romans themselves are going to unwittingly take him from place to place into, they're going to take the greatest evangelist of all time under their protection right into the very heart of Rome. And as they're transporting him, uh, they've got hundreds of soldiers with this one man. It's an incredible thing what God here has sovereignly arranged that his gospel might be heard by the greatest rulers of the land. Oh, God is in control here in the most incredible ways. His plan for Paul is perfect, just as his ways and plans for us are perfect as well, even when the paths he takes us down are littered with trials and hardships along the way. He is always working all things for our good and for the good of many others who will see and hear and believe our testimony as we go on entrusting ourselves to the Lord in all things. The real question then, as Paul begins his first trial before his first Roman governor this morning, is not, What is Paul going to do? How is he going to get out of this one? What are you going to do, Paul? The real question is, what are these kings and rulers going to do when they hear the life-changing message that God has ordained for them now to hear from Paul, their prisoner? Because despite first appearances, it's not really Paul who's on trial here in these next few chapters. It is these kings and rulers and his accusers. They're the ones who are now on trial as they hear the most important message from God that they will ever hear and have to decide how to respond. That is what really matters most in our chapter this morning. So this morning, let's not be worrying about Paul. He's okay. He's already saved. He is already safe forever in the Lord. The real concern this morning 
is the dangerous predicament of all those who don't yet have salvation and safety in Jesus. How will they respond? How will you respond? If you're here this morning, maybe you're a regular churchgoer, and yet perhaps you don't yet have Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. How will you respond? That is the important question this morning that our passage is going to help us address. Now we could um, we could go into uh, all we could go into more detail at the start here, looking at the particular situation, the accusations against Paul, and how he defends himself. Uh, but those things are really just a sideshow. Paul quickly proves how all of these accusations they don't hold up, uh, they hold no water, they're just fabricated, they're demonstrably not true. And even Felix, the governor, who is the judge in this, comes to that conclusion pretty quickly as well. Paul's trial here is not some kind of complex, tense, drawn-out John Grisham courtroom drama. Okay, this wouldn't, this, this, the trial itself is not going to sell novels in the airport. It's, it's too easy to solve. The real drama of the passage this morning begins further down the page. And so this is where I want you to cast your eyes. This is where we're going to look. As we wonder... What will Felix personally do with regards to his own soul? The the real drama begins in verse 24. When Felix takes a personal interest, as should all of we, not in the false and trumped up charges, but in the actual gospel message of Paul. So that's where we're going to spend our time together this morning. We're going to explore three things. Felix's openness, Paul's message, and Felix's response. First of all, Felix's openness. In verse 22, Felix, having heard all of the arguments and having seen how flimsy the case against Paul really is, puts off deciding what to do with Paul because he says he wants to wait for some other judiciary help to come and uh, come alongside him. Now, what we're actually being introduced here to, to here in Felix is something of a character flaw that's going to become significant later on. Felix is a man who has a tendency to dither and delay on making decisions. A man who often chooses to procrastinate or even to not do the right thing because he's worried about what other people will think. The other interesting thing we learn about him from about him in verse 22 is that he already has a rather accurate knowledge of Christianity. It says he has a rather accurate knowledge of the way. This is a man who knows something about the Christian faith. Likely because that by that point there were a good number of Christians living in Caesarea and he's presumably picked up a bit from observing them. So Translate Felix to the modern day, and well, maybe take away the fact that he's a sort of a a high up judge and ruler, but he's the kind of person who, though not yet a Christian, might say, Well, I've chatted to lots of Christians. I have some Christian friends. I've watched some Christian YouTube videos. I've maybe even been on an Alpha course or a Christianity Explored course. He has a rather accurate knowledge of the Christian faith. And then Drusilla, his wife, is Jewish. So she might not know much about Jesus, but she would know something about the God of the Old Testament, the God of the Scriptures. She's got some knowledge as well. She might be the equivalent of a person today who grew up in a religious family. 
perhaps who went to Sunday school when they were little and who still goes to church at Christmas and Easter or drops in from time to time and who's happy to admit there's probably a God. And to both of their credits, now that they have this opportunity, Felix and Drusilla seem to have something of a genuine desire to hear more from Paul. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. They want to hear more. They want to learn. They're open. And that's commendable. If you're not yet a Christian, but you're here again this morning because you have a genuine desire to hear more, that is a very commendable place to start. If we've got friends or colleagues or neighbors or family members who are open to hearing about Christianity, who, who want to properly understand it and assess it for themselves, that is wonderful. Let's commend them and encourage them and help them in that. Being open to listening is the very best place for anyone to begin approaching the Christian faith. But interest and openness alone is not enough. It's not enough to make someone a Christian. It's not enough to make someone half a Christian. What everyone ultimately needs, as Paul goes on to describe in verse 24, is they need to come to actual personal faith in Jesus. And to do that, those who are open to listening need to hear and take on board what the Christian message actually is. So that brings us to our second heading this morning, Paul's message. Paul's message. Um, I think we live in a time where there are all sorts of talented people giving engaging presentations and messages. I think they say this is kind of like what ancient Greece was like. You know, they had great orators. And I think it's a bit like that today. If you, certainly if you go online, you can find all sorts of people giving some really convincing presentations from TED Talks, where people hold an audience's attention. They hold them somewhat spellbound by the novel and intriguing things that they share to contestants on Dragon's Den who present a sales pitch designed to wow and win approval and backing and support. And Paul, too, of course, was a really gifted speaker. And so he could have easily, in this instance, chosen to have gone down either of those two routes. He could have gone down the TED Talk route, or he could have gone down the Dragon's Den route, now that he's got this audience with Felix and Drusilla. At choosing the TED Talk option, he could have impressed them and kept them riveted with all of his great learning, he could have spoken on fascinating matters of history and philosophy and theology and anthropology. He could have come to them as a wise sage, someone that they would quickly grow and learn to value in their courtroom, someone to look to for advice and wisdom. Or he could have gone in with the Dragon's Den sales pitch. Here's the product I'm promoting. It's called the Gospel. Here's all the revolutionary things it can do to make your life easier. It'll make you rich. It'll make you happy. It'll sell like hotcakes with the right financial backers. You're going to get behind this, Felix and Drusilla. Now, it may have seemed like it would have been in Paul's best interest to go with one of those, to go with any method that would impress his captors, the ones who hold his very life in their hands. But Paul is only concerned with one thing to speak the truth to people. He's not out to impress or win their favor. 
His only desire is to genuinely love the people in front of him, to love Felix and Drusilla by sharing with them not what they might want to hear, but what they really need to hear. Which means he's willing to tell them the bad news along with the good. Something that's important to realize about Felix and Drusilla that we haven't touched on yet is they were actually quite the rotten pair. These guys did not have a good reputation. Felix was known as a brutal and greedy dictator, a master of cruelty and lust and extortion. And Drusilla was known for being promiscuous and an adulteress. She abandoned her first husband in order to marry Felix. Now the thing is, Paul has no qualms about sharing the gospel message with these kind of people. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners are the gospel's target audience. So, so Paul has got no problem sharing the gospel with Felix and Drusilla just because of their backgrounds. But he knows that in order for them to truly appreciate the full extent of the good news about Jesus, they must grasp the full extent of the bad news about themselves, about their sin. And so you picture them just as they're maybe settling in. I don't know if they're sat on kind of comfy thrones. That's how I picture them. And just as they're settling in for what they're hoping to be a nice, cozy, uplifting message from Paul or, or maybe something intellectually stimulating or, you know, kind of good entertainment for the evening. Instead, Paul begins, verse 25, to reason with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Or to put it another way, he begins to talk about God's holiness, man's sinfulness, and God's judgment. Just imagine the, maybe the surprise and the shock that came over them as they began to listen. That these, these guys were used to being flattered. I don't know if you picked up in the reading earlier on, but um, the, uh, the, the lawyer that was against Paul spent half of his time just flattering Felix and telling him what an amazing judge he was. And he knew he wasn't an amazing judge, he knew he was horrible, but he flattered him. This is what Felix is used to, but now, imagine the shock. If Paul had a sympathetic friend present there that day, maybe in their minds they were thinking, oh no, Paul, don't do this. Why, why not stick to the happy parts of the gospel, Paul? Why, why not just tell them God loves us and he sent his son to... Give us a wonderful gift and then see where they go from there. But again, Paul knows, no, in order for them to even want that gift, in order for them to really receive that gift, they need to understand the greatness of their need for that gift. They need to understand that we are all sinners, that we all need a saviour and that Jesus is our only hope of rescue from the penalty due to us for our sins. I mentioned that parking fine I got. Then as I was opening it, I mentioned you know, realizing that I'm innocent. What a relief. And because I was innocent, I knew I could prove it, and I knew they'd let me off the payment. But it's not so with God's charges against us. We have no defense to make. We have no innocence to present. We don't have a receipt that says, no, 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 you've got this wrong. I've already paid for my sins. We are guilty without question. We can no more defend ourselves before a perfectly holy God than Felix and Drusilla could. Even though we might, not, we might think, I'm not as bad as them. 
Even though we might think we're more squeaky clean looking on the outside, Romans 3, 9 and 10 says, All are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. God sees our hearts. He sees the things that we hope no one else will ever see. And most of all, he sees that the root of it all is our rebellion against him. And he will not turn a blind eye. That is the bad news that Felix and Drusilla and you and I and our loved ones and our neighbors and our colleagues so desperately need to hear. But here's the unimaginably good news that goes with it. That bad news never goes out alone. It always goes hand in hand with the good news. That God in his mercy has made a way for people to be completely forgiven and set free. He has made a way to wipe away the record of all our sin. To cancel our debt. Made a way to wash away all of our guilt. Even if it's the, 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 the public guilt of uh, Felix and, and um, Drusilla. He's made a way for us to be saved at no cost to ourselves but at priceless cost to himself and he has done it by sending his son it's where we began this morning he sent Jesus to live the sinless life we couldn't live to die the sinner's death that we deserve to die and to rise to give us the new life that we could never otherwise have with him Jesus is the way and he is the truth and he's the life. He's the only way to God and he is the most priceless gift from God. And that is the best news in all of the universe that anyone will ever hear. And I know that so many of us know that and we love that. But it's a news that shines 10,000 times more brightly against the black backdrop of our sin. In fact, this news doesn't shine at all if there's no mention of the problem of sin. So Paul here is being faithful and he is being a loving witness. He wants them to be saved far more than he wants their approval or far more than he wants his freedom or his safety or even his own life. But how will they respond? And how will you respond again if you're here this morning and you've not yet genuinely turned to Christ and received him as your saviour and lord well third and final heading this morning Felix's response you can sum up Felix's response in two words just two words alarm and delay first of all alarm verse 25 Felix was alarmed he was literally terrified by what Paul was saying. It's the very same word, actually, that was used to describe the Philippian jailer's response in Acts 16, who, after the great earthquake that shook the very foundations of the jail where he was holding Paul and Silas in prison, he came trembling with fear. He came alarmed and fell down before Paul and Silas, saying, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, Felix's heart has just experienced an earthquake of its own. He's had, a, he's had a, an earthquake on the inside. He's been shaken to his very foundations. It, we might have ex- expected him to get angry listening to Paul. Listening to Paul addressing him on his sin and his need of a saviour. But instead, no, his conscience is agonised. 
He's cut to the heart by Paul's message. This is God's word at work. This is the Holy Spirit at work. The gospel is like this mirror that's being held up before Felix, showing him exactly what he looks like in the sight of God. Weighing him on the scale of God's holiness and showing Felix where the needle is going. I do believe Felix feels genuine conviction here. And clearly fear too as he hears Paul speak to him about the coming judgment. The Bible says, Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The Bible says that on that On the final day, Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Felix, in his heart and through Paul's preaching, is catching a glimpse of that final day. That day that is coming for him. And he is rightly dumbstruck with alarm and terror. As we all should be if our sins have not yet been washed and atoned for by the blood of Jesus. That makes all the difference in the world. Time has surely come then for Felix to make a decision. Will he, here's the drama, will he repent and believe and receive the most incredible relief from Jesus? Or will he continue to reject God's offer of mercy and rescue? For a moment here, it looks like life-changing things are about to happen. It looks like it's going to be the Philippian jailer all over again. Another episode in Acts where we have a most amazing transformation. And then Felix decides to hit the pause button. He decides to delay. Felix, verse 25, was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Felix has just been presented with and convicted of the most urgent personal crisis that he will ever face the state of his soul before God, and he decides, I'm going to kick the can down the road. He shakes off the urgency of what Paul has just shared with him with with the thought, with the excuse that, well, I've got other important things to attend to, other business to, to give my attention to. Now is not convenient to get right with God. This is madness. Remember Jesus said, Mark 8, what good is it? For someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul. But Felix is telling himself, now is not the time to worry about these things. Now is not convenient to get right with God. How many people will there be who one day find themselves in hell because they procrastinated and delayed on the day, that earthly day, when God first cut them to the heart with the gospel. And how many others will be there in hell with them who heard the gospel and were cut to the heart 
on many earthly occasions, maybe even someone, many people even, that who were in church week after week and still did not turn from their sin and cry out to Jesus for rescue when they had the chance. Kent Hughes says there are two tragedies that are possible for every human soul. The first is the tragedy of never trembling, of never coming to face one's sin before a holy God. But the second is the tragedy of disregarding such spirit-produced trembling. It's a tragedy not to tremble, but it's also a tragedy to tremble and then never respond. This is a tragedy of epic proportions. The Philippian jailer's trembling ended in his conversion and in the most immediate joy and relief and freedom from all fear and guilt and condemnation. And if Felix had only likewise in this moment, doesn't matter about his past, if he'd only in this trembling moment asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? He would have received the very same promise-filled invitation that the jailer did. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And he could have ended this day a new man with the greatest of all his burdens forever lifted from his shoulders, with a blissful eternity with God laid out as a gift of grace before him. But Felix's trembling ends not in this life-changing moment, this life-giving conversion. It ends in deadly procrastination. There's a story told from the American Revolution that illustrates well what a tragedy can happen from procrastination. Uh, It took place at the Battle of Trenton. It was fought on Christmas Day, 1776, on the Delaware River in New Jersey. There was a man called Colonel Rahl, and he was in command of the Hessian forces, a German regiment uh, fighting for the British Empire. And the British at this point were doing well, all things considered. The Americans had been on the retreat. Until that is, one night, George Washington with some 2,400 men, resolved to attack Raal and his forces by creeping up on them under cover of darkness. They were going to cross the the ice-cold river at dead of night in the hope of surprising the British. The thing is, it wouldn't have been a surprise if it wasn't for the deadly delay of Colonel Raal. On the night of the attack, several hours before the American boats reached the shore where the soldiers would disembark and, and set about their attack, a note was delivered to Raal with the information that the enemy was approaching. But Raal was busy enjoying dinner. I guess maybe it was Christmas dinner. And so he took the note and he tucked it in his pocket, deciding he was going to read it when the evening food and games was over. It proved a fatal mistake. When finally he realizes the seriousness of the situation, he hurriedly tries to rally his men to defend themselves But his procrastination was his undoing. Raal and many of his men were killed. The fateful note was still found in his pocket unread. And the rest of the regiment was captured. His delay cost him his very life and cost his soldiers their freedom. In matters of life and death, and the gospel is a matter of life and death, delay and procrastination can be deadly. But let me just raise, let's raise a question here. Can we say for sure that Felix's procrastination was the death of him? Can we know that? 
Didn't he get another chance, like he said he would, to hear Paul again and consider his message? In one way, he did get many more chances. Verse 26, after this, he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. Paul is his prisoner. He's got him sort of on tap. He can, cut, he can listen to him whenever he likes. And he did. He brought him many times to talk with Paul. He lived to hear Paul on many more occasions. But what's also clear is his hope was increasingly set on extracting money from Paul rather than receiving instruction on the way of salvation from him. Felix likely never felt the same level of conviction that he felt that first time he heard the gospel. Matthew Henry says, Many lose all the benefit of their convictions for want of striking while the iron is hot. By dropping his convictions now, Felix lost them forever and himself with them. Even though he kept listening to the great Apostle Paul, his heart grew harder and harder until finally, verse 27, when two whole years of opportunities had elapsed for him, Felix was removed from his position and replaced by Festus. And, and we're told that Felix's last act before leaving Caesarea, it really sums it up and says it all about his heart. He made the decision to go on delaying doing what was right with regards to Paul. He made the decision to go on people-pleasing and leaves Paul in prison. He went on postponing his judgments. Not many years later... Felix died. And as James Montgomery Boyce writes, when he died, he appeared before that one who will not postpone his judgments, that one who does not accept bribes. He says, so far as we know from Scripture, Felix is in hell at this moment, and one day we will all stand before that great judge too. Either we will be pardoned and protected in Jesus in the most incredible way or we will be there with no other choice than to pay the price ourselves. So what then should we do? If some of us haven't yet personally trusted in Christ and made him our only hope, he is our only hope of rescue. Well, if Felix and Colonel Raal can teach us the simplest of all lessons today, it is this, the title of this morning's message, Don't Delay. Don't delay. Don't ever delay when God shows you your sin and invites you to run to Jesus. Too much is at stake to delay making peace with God today in the hope that you might be able to do it tomorrow or the next day. In the affairs of our souls, delay can be eternally deadly. Time is short. Our days on earth are brief and fleeting and our hearts are experts at deceiving us and putting off what matters most. But maybe there's someone listening here this morning, someone not yet a Christian who says, listen, now really isn't a good time for me. My life is genuinely busy and it's so complex. It's too complex for me to respond right now. Maybe you say, I've still got a lot of questions. I've got a lot of things I want to do and try out and experience before I make my decision. But listen, if you have been reminded of nothing else this morning than that you are a sinner in the eyes of your maker, then you already know enough to know you need a savior. And Jesus is that one and only God-given savior. 
Acts 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so I tell you, today is the day to turn to him for rescue. If my 42 years of life has taught me anything in this world, it is that life is always busy and it just keeps getting busier. There will always be things that seem so much more pressing and important to do. Things that if we let them persuade us to neglect the things of God, things that will destroy us in the end, if they make us neglect the thing of first importance. Felix is like this flashing neon sign for us. Anytime you look at Acts 24 as we're doing this morning, he's a flashing neon sign, a warning to us against delay, telling us, make sure you are in a right relationship with God today. Whether we like it or not, the, the penalty notice, the letter, the fine has come through all of our doors. It has landed on all of our doorsteps. The envelope has already been opened. Whether we choose to hide from it or not won't change the truth of it. Maybe this morning, despite appearances, you have been putting off getting right with God many times before today. Many, maybe for many years before today. Maybe as well, you're sat here this morning and you're trembling because you're wondering, is it too late? So many times I've heard this and I've been convicted, but I haven't responded. Is it too late for me? If you're here this morning and you're hearing this message, it is not too late. There is still this opportunity now for you to respond in repentance and faith today. You may not have the opportunity tomorrow. You, you could, any one of us could drop dead of a heart attack this evening, you may not make it home for lunch. You could get knocked down in the street. Or you could still be living tomorrow, but your heart could be even further from the Lord, even even more hardened against truly repenting and believing. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to genuinely respond to God's invitation. Right now, if you're not saved, God is calling you perhaps perhaps for the very last time, to repent and believe on Christ and be forgiven and forever saved. Take him up on his offer. In the words of the old Christian preacher Charles Spurgeon, he says, oh, that you might now say, today, my God, today I confess my sin. Today I ask you to manifest your grace. Today, receive my guilty soul and show me a Savior's blood. Today, I renounce my follies, my vices and my sins, constrained by sovereign grace. Today, I cast away my good works as my ground of trust. Today, I cry, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Or to borrow the even simpler words of a trembling tax collector which is say God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you said Jesus that this man went home justified before God you you could go home if you're not already you could go home justified before God today if you'll only confess your sin to him and cry out to Jesus for rescue 
Let's all of us, let's take a minute to consider these things in our own hearts before God now, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, please help each and every one of us to take the things of your word deep into our hearts today. Even now, Lord, we pray, please work in the hearts of those who are listening but not yet trusting in Jesus. Whether whether they be young or old, new to church or a churchgoer for many years, Lord, have mercy upon them. Lord, we pray, give them eyes to truly see their sin and their need of a saviour. And then, Lord, we pray, would you take them by the hand and lead them to Jesus. Help them to turn this very day in repentance and faith to him. And Lord, for those of us here this morning who are, by your wonderful grace, already believers, safe and forever secure in your son, Father, we we just rejoice and we want to pour out unending thanks to you for giving us such a saviour. Father, we thank you for the unimaginable peace and assurance that comes from such a gracious salvation. A salvation that doesn't depend in any way, in any part, on any good work or good deed in us. Oh Lord, help us, we pray, not to be ashamed to share the good news with those who so desperately need to hear it. Help us, Lord, not to be ashamed to share the bad news about sin that will help them to see why the good news is so good. And finally, we do pray as well, Lord, as Christians, that you would give us hearts that are forevermore tender and quick to respond to your word as you continue to speak into our lives every day. Oh Lord, may none of us be those who put off until tomorrow those things which we could do today that would help us to grow in our knowledge of you, that would help us to love and honor you more, that would help us to serve and do good to those around us. Lord, we pray these things in the precious name of our Saviour Jesus. Amen.